You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. T.C. Boyle is the author of many books worth your valuable reading time, from World's End to Drop City to The Inner Circle, Talk Talk, A Friend of the Earth, The Women, Wild Child, When the Killing's Done, Sam Miguel's Stories Too, The Harder They Come, The Taranauts, his new novel is Blue Skies. Thank you for joining me, T.C. My pleasure, Rick. It's good to see you again. I was was partway into this book and I was reminded of a poster that I saw back in 1974 when I was in high school. Oops, giving it away, but <laughs> <laughs> there you go. It was for a movie that I absolutely knew I did not want to see, and it was called The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and the uh, poster said, who will survive and what will be left of them? <laughs> and as I read your book, I studied, I thought, well, there's he's already got the tagline written for the movie. Yeah, well, um, what's happening to us as a species on this planet is a hell of a lot worse worse than just some guy chopping us up with uh, chainsaws, right? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> and, and, you know, one of the things I really like about this book, it, to a certain extent, it reminds me of a, of a di- very different movie that came out uh, 10 years later uh, called Threads which the the premise was pretty simple. There's a nuclear war. The U.S. and the Soviet Union at the time just decided to start firing nuclear weapons, but we see it all through the eyes of some families in England who experience the worst of it. it the first half of the, of the movie is something of a soap opera, and the, the rest of it's just a horrific tragedy. <laughs> Well, you know, this, is, of course, is my method here. Uh, I wrote A Friend of the Earth in the year 2000, and it projects to 2026. And it's about global warming. It has a pandemic in it, the whole thing. I saw it all coming. But now that we're here, you and I, particularly you, you're, uh, you know, up um, in Santa Cruz, I'm down here in Santa Barbara, we are getting the effects of the weather here. Uh, and everybody is having to live with it, uh, not only the drought, but then the floods. Uh, And so I wondered if I could make this book, Blue Skies, a companion piece to A Friend of the Earth. Now it's now. Let's see what's going to happen in the next few years. And so I've got a family, a bi-coastal family, a mother, uh, daughter, and son, uh, who are the principal characters in the book. And we see what's happening to the world through their eyes. And the great thing here for me was this. We're in the middle of the 1,200-year drought, you know, every day. I'm crazy about it. Uh, But in Florida, where my good friend lives, coastal Florida, they've got the opposite problem. It's raining, and the sea level is rising and inundating everything. So I have my heroine, Kat, the daughter, 26. She moves to Florida from California. Her boyfriend's mother had a place on the ocean there beach house, which they could never have afforded. She dies, they move in. So I've got them in Florida, and then I've got the mother and her brother, the entomologist, living out here. And I can play 
the catastrophes <laughs> of, of what we live through daily on both coasts. You know, one of the things I was thinking, and, and one, this book is so wonderful at that, at making you look around at the world and reinterpret it through the lens that of what happens in the book, is that we have, for the past many years, you, you know, you, you watch at night the weather predictions and say, oh, the weather's going to be this and the weather's going to be that. But now when we look out the window, what's happening, it's not weather anymore. It's a very slow-moving catastrophe of climate change. And, you know, I just think of the old adage of, you know, you put a frog in a saucer on a burner, let it sit in the water and turn up the heat slowly enough. And yeah, Rick, I mean, that's exactly the position we've been in for some time. And again, I did see it coming, but that doesn't make it any better. Uh, another thing that, that motivated me here was... Uh, I read, uh, you probably did too, about the decline of flying insects. This German amateur entomological society, the Greffold Society, they have been studying the insects in Germany for many, many years, and they've seen a catastrophic decline in the number of flying insects. And that's why entomology is such um, a, a big feature of blue skies. In any, in any case, I began to wonder, well, okay, <laughs> Goodbye to the flying insects. Uh, we don't need mosquitoes anyway. But um, what about the food chain? What about the bottom of the food chain? How is it going to affect our future and what we eat, let alone the fact that you know, the crops are moving north, uh, the animals are all going extinct? So again, I just wanted to examine this for my own purposes just to see how I feel about things. You know, one of the things that I think makes your book so wonderful is the clarity of the characters and the way you convey their relationships to one another. It all feels so organic and real. And I'm wondering, like, for example, Catherine, when we first meet Cap, i got to say she's not like a super likable character. If I saw her, I think she'd be repelled by me. <laughs> <laughs> and I just say, well, okay, nice. But so talk about creating the characters and creating the character arcs. Mm. Well, uh, Catherine, Cat, she's uh, a little bit frivolous. She doesn't really concern herself much with what's going on in the world. And if she um, has a sin... It's that frivolousness and obliviousness to what's going on so that in the opening pages, she's bored or her, her, her boyfriend, soon to be her husband, is at the car detailing shop getting his car detailed. Uh, this is in northern Florida. She's bored. She's only been there a couple of months. She hates Florida, the weather, it's muggy and so on. What is she going to do? Well, while he's obsessing over the car, she walks up the street and, you know, it's a neighborhood that isn't the greatest and, you know, a couple of Haitian, Cuban restaurants, whatever. And um, she's just looking for something. She's a shopper. She's an influencer on the Internet. And um, the only store around is called Herps. And in the window uh, on this wonderful big canted piece of wood is a Burmese python, a huge Burmese python. And it has a fascinating and gorgeous pattern to it, as so many snakes do. And that make something click in her mind is she sees it as an adornment and she goes into the shop and of course winds up 
buying a, a small, a small but soon to be larger <laughs> uh, a python to wear around her neck uh, to show off, to maybe help her uh, sell products as an influencer on the internet. And um, from there, things just spin out of control. Meanwhile, her brother, Cooper, is an environmentalist and, and uh, an entomologist who, like many environmentalists, me, for instance, tends to lecture people about how bad things are. Um, uh, I hope that through my art, I can deliver um, messages about the world without pushing anything on anybody. No, and you know, that's one of the things I really like about the book is that it's all showing us and not telling us. And this brings me to one of the first things I thought about Cooper. Um, I remember one of the, takes me back to another one of your books. The first book I read actually was World's End. And in World's End, there's a strange coincidence in this family. It has to do with losing limbs. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm wondering... Is this something that that you have personal experience with, or, or, or? Well, in fact, I do. I have not lost any limbs, but one of my close friends was in the same position of Walter Van Brunt in World's End. He was a wild young wild man, and he wound up for a while uh, even test driving motorcycles for Harley. And one day, he went down hard and ripped off his right foot. A couple of years later, he went down hard, ripped off his left foot. <laughs> and they only give you two feet in this lifetime. He's fine. He gets around fine. You wouldn't even know there's anything wrong with him. But uh, it's kind of a metaphor. You don't have your feet on the ground, you know, and that, that kind of thing. Um, in this case, though, it's even more, um, it's even more personal. And, uh, in fact, there's a little bit of voodoo involved. So... Uh, in the book, Cooper, when we meet him, he is working at a nature preserve near Santa Barbara doing bug studies. And there's a girl there he kind of likes and starts to date her. She's an acarologist. An acarologist is a person who studies ticks. So he goes with her into the field to collect ticks. What you do is you take a white sheet and you drag it behind you through the bushes and you can see the ticks, presumably, against the white and pluck them up and study them. Well, it's a windy day. The, the sheets are flapping. They don't get anything. They spend some time out there. They're, they're bored. They go to the bar and go dancing. The very end of the chapter, he is in the bathroom prior to going to bed. He takes off his shirt and he notices that there is a tick larva, a tiny, tiny tick larva attached to his right forearm. Okay, I'd written that. I didn't know what was going to come next, but I'd written that. Within, Rick, within a week or two weeks, I had gone out into the, the San Andreas Mountains right here uh, on a hike. I came home, and my forearm really hurt like hell, as if I'd banged it against something. There was a tick larva embedded in my right forearm. Uh, amazing. It's amazing. I've, not, I've had many ticks before, but... When it hurts like that, it means that it's not simply going to be Lyme disease. And what it was, was cellulitis. Cellulitis is a bacterial infection of the skin, transmitted through the tick. It could be fatal. 
it could lead to necrotizing fasciitis. You could lose a limb. And uh, meanwhile, it was COVID. So I had to do telemedicine and show my arm to the doctor and it's inflamed and by bubbling skin and so on. And he had me take a magic marker and outline it and trace it to see if it's spreading. And it did, it spread and went to the other side of the arm all the way up past the elbow. He gave me some heavy duty antibiotics, clindamycin, and it finally after a week or so began to recede. So I immediately inflicted that on Cooper, who didn't do quite as well as I did. But the voodoo of it, of writing about it, and then actually having it happen to me afterward is so strange. It's not the first time that I have written things that have actually happened. I don't know what that's about. Maybe I should go to Las Vegas. <laughs> I think you'd, you'd be like uh, the guy played by William H. Macy who, like, destroyed luck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, um, one of the things that I thought was so interesting about the way this book is put together is your use of the perspective of the, you know, very close third person. You can orchestrate this. It's like Rashomon or something, only instead of um, a single murder, you're doing, instead of having like eight people show one event, from from different points of view, you get that you turn it around. It's like a, a panopticon, and, and what we're you know what we are come to realize is that these things that seem very separate in the book, separate events in a novel, are really intimately connected, and that same thing is happening to us right now. So that when you hear the people in Florida say. This is only this this rainstorm we're having here that's washing everything down. It only happens once in a hundred years. Well, it only we know thinking. Well, it only happened once in the last hundred years. In the next hundred years, it's going to become an annual event. Guys, get ready. Exactly. Yeah, and and we speak as Californians, knowing this perfectly well. And uh, I, this will go out to all our Floridian friends too. Watch out for those king tides, you know. <laughs> as far as a point of view is concerned, I really like a very close third-person point of view. It's almost like a first-person because you're so closely involved in this person's perceptions and mind. And then, of course, you can take the same scene and present it from the point of view of, the, of, of one of the other characters in the scene. This is a wonderful way of narration. Um, I like first-person narration, too, and I, I use it more often in stories, I think, than in novels. But um, with first-person, uh, the author can't step in uh, and, and, and orchestrate things quite in the way because the first-person narrator is always limited. And there's a joy to that, and, and it, it can be great as well because the reader can stand back and say, well, this first-person narrator... The schmuck. He's right, right, right. Obviously, this is going to happen, and he's going to regret it. But with third person, I think uh, it gives me a bigger tapestry, and just the way you're suggesting. This novel is incredibly dark. <clears throat> I don't think you've gotten <laughs> this dark, I think, in anything I've seen thus far. I'm wondering, you know, writing so, some of the scenes in the book are are you know really 
uh, upsetting. And it's interesting because uh, part of this helps us, you know, as we see Catherine grow and, and get better, we like her more and more. She becomes more and more likable. And you do a, an incredible job. You know, I just realized this point that how nicely that, that by the time she really needs our sympathy, we're willing to give it. And I'm curious about, you know, your orchestrating that. Was that something that you thought of way in advance? Or is that, was that just like, you know, the fortuitous uh, advice from the tick doctor on tele-tick-doctor? Oh, <laughs> uh, wow. So uh, I love your take on it, Rick. Exactly. Um, as you know from our many conversations in the past, everything I do happens organically. And if that is the arc of the character, well, that is the way she came to me and the way she developed over the course of the year or so when I was writing this. Um, I'm happy you see it that way because we need to have sympathy for her given what happens in the end of the book. You know, too, it strikes me that the way you write, it's like a, a, a rainstorm on the paper. The words fall from the paper, but you as the writer are as it were, seeding the clouds. So <laughs> by, you know, uh, you, you by involving part A, you know, the, because Chekhov's gun is on the wall, we know it's going to come down. And if there are, if, you know, a, a character gets a, a snake, which can become very large, we know that that size is going to become problematic at some point. <laughs> In the narrative. Yeah, yeah. You know, one, one of the writers uh, who wrote about this book said, you know, a snake in the bag in the first chapter is like Chekhov's gun on the mantle. You know it's going to have consequences down the line. As far as being dark, I don't know. Uh, it's Yes, it's, it's a dark vision, but it's a dark world we're living in. And there is no good news with regard to uh, climate catastrophe. Um, it's my mode. I... I don't know. Uh, I am always wondering about what are we doing on this planet? Who are we as an ape species? I forget my last novel is talk to me about uh, a chimp uh, learning our language. Uh, I'm, um, I don't have a lot of good news, uh, particularly in, in involving the 8 billion people now on the planet and our role in all of that. We are animals subject to all the uh, the ills and joys of all the other animals. Uh, I like rainy days. I like the blues. I like the saddest of cello concertos. Uh, that is where my soul lies. Uh, I think there's a lot of joy in the book, but the joy for me is in the, its structure, its language, the things that we're talking about now. Um, it's a good read. It's a, it, it opens you up. But and, and again, I'm not scoring points for the environment or anything like this. If that happens and yet should affect a given reader, well, great. But that is not my purpose. My purpose is to be an artist living in this mysterious world and trying as best I can to create scenarios to illuminate it. It one of the I think the thing you're saying and I think the thing that's really true about this book is it feels like one living creature with crawling all sort but you know like human beings a human creature a creature that's not just one creature but infested with all 
parts of other microscopic things crawling through it. And I think that the idea of, you know, life on this planet, we all think that intelligence is an asset to life. It may not prove that to be that way. <laughs> and, yeah, and, we've, we've talked about this before, Rick. And uh, again, uh, in my last one, talk to me. That's exactly what I'm trying to get at. How do we know who we are? It's through language that we can tell. I'm me. I, I, this is me reviewing the world. Um, and language has enabled us to be doing what we're doing right now. To create art, to sit here uh, in electronic media, looking at each other, even though I'd love to be in the studio with you again. Um, but is there a limitation? You know, speaking in Darwinian terms, uh, we had uh, an adaptation, a series of adaptations that allowed us to do what we're doing and master the other animals and in the process, destroy the planet, which is exactly what we've done. Um, but is is our intelligence and our language a kind of backwater? Do we really need it? Should there have been a point in our distant past when we weren't prey anymore? We were smart enough not to be exclusively prey. Well, we could have shut all that off, that we don't need this excess that has enabled us to overpopulate the earth. I, you know, I just wrote a, a new short story. I've never read short stories now. And um, someone had sent me a list of the 100 best uh, environmental books. And way toward the end of that list were a couple of books by Kenneth Anderson. He was uh, an Anglo-Indian, uh, third generation, uh, we're talking in the 1920s and 30s. And he wrote stories about going out and shooting man-eaters in the jungle, you know, and they're very exciting. And I remembered I had read him as a kid and they're great. So I wrote a new story about that called The Man-Eater. And it's a lot of fun, but what it is considering is what we're talking about here. Um, in his time, in these rural villages in India, uh, nobody had any guns or any way of protecting themselves from uh, tigers and panthers. So we humans living there were um, just like the deer, just like the cows. If it wanted you, it got you, you know? There's nothing you could do about it. It was far more powerful. And no matter how brilliant you were or how much you improved your hut or how many thorn bushes you stacked outside, we were still prey. And so our, our minds have gotten us beyond that. We've killed off all the predators for one thing, and here we are. <laughs> but, 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 but let's not forget the insects which dominate this book. You know, they're still out there. And again, speaking of evolution, so ticks, you know, I'm... You know me, I'm a lover of animals. Why not feed them? They just need to live just like everybody else. The problem is hitching a ride are the bacteria and the viruses because they see an opening. And so if the tick didn't give me Lyme disease and cellulitis, it'd be no big deal. I used to think that it'd be nice you could uh, sell leeches as family pets and have a bowl of leeches uh, and everybody would sit around the table and offer their fingers to a leech. I welcome the leech. I welcome the leech. The, the leech uh, has been very beneficial in medicine. It's come back in use, you know, uh, especially when your nose has been bitten off in a bar fight and they reattach it. And no, truly. And you need to have small capillaries reintegrated. And... Medicinally, leeches are used uh, for this. 
Uh, true, true, true enough. Uh, this is why I have so much fun talking to you, TC. Uh, and let's now not forget Wordsworth. My favorite uh, Wordsworth poem is The Leech Gatherer, in which the poet comes across this guy. He's barely making a living. He's, he's got nothing. He's old. And, you know, you know, England, it's so miserable, freezing all the time. And here's this old guy with his pant legs rolled up, wading into a pond to catch leeches to sell them to the doctors. And he's giving his blood, which he has precious little of, in order to make a living. That sort of is... like novelists. It's sort of like novelists, I think. Yeah? <laughs> yeah, the, <laughs> at least the one I'm talking to. <laughs> you know, one of the things that I think is so interesting uh, about, you know, our current predicament is how fast it, it's moving. And this has to all to do with statistics, which was explained to me by one of my friends who's, who's heavily into the math and explained that as the bell curve grows into this certain shape, the perturbations on the ends of the bell curve, which is where we are, grow larger and larger. So what what is happening is more and more extreme beyond what we might expect. And, and to this end, I walk on the beach down by where I live every day, and I was thinking, I've been thinking, well, you know, probably about my granddaughter will say, you know, Dad used to walk on that down by where there's now a lagoon, and so, you know, that was kind of my expectation of the, of the time scale. You know, I would be gone, and the right, lagoon. Right, right. Me too, Rick. So again, everybody says I'm so prescient because of a friend of the Earth in the year 2000, which predicted all of this coming. But really, uh, it wasn't so hard to predict. The thing that amazed me was me as a wise guy, you know, projecting satirist. Into the, I thought it would be in the distant future that this would happen. And uh, Jesus, 10 years ago, it was already here. And that's, again, one of the motivations for Blue Skies uh, to just see how we're dealing with it. How do we deal with it day to day right now? One of the things I think that this book does is so well is to integrate the big themes into the small picture, which is, you know, these two families, they're just, they are not like, you know, superheroes, they're not super rich, they're, you know, just trying to get by with what they've got, but they're also perfect places for the perturbations of climate and species, you um you know, invasive species, all of that to start showing, you know, the spikes. They each see the spikes. And I have to say that the uh, the insect scenes I found, you know, particularly emotionally disturbing. And I think that that shows, you know, the, the true power of a great writer is somebody who can make us terrified when, when bees and ants die. Mm. Well, thanks, Rick. Uh, I'm glad. Uh, uh, again, there is no overarching plan for any of my books that I could uh, explain beforehand in an outline. Afterward, I could write you an essay on it if you wanted. Uh, well, I, I work by instinct and all of these scenes uh, with the insects and the whole theme of insect life uh, as opposed to our lives. 
uh, integrates itself and suggests itself throughout the book. So for instance, Ottilie, the mother of Cooper and Kat, she, like many of us, wants to do her part to help reduce our footprint on the earth. And one way to do that is to give up eating meat. And so she adopts an insect diet. Insects are a great way to get protein and uh, it does, and the cultivation of them uh, uh, doesn't have the kind of impact that uh, cows, pigs, et cetera, have. And um, I had a lot of fun with that. I had a lot of fun with her di first dinner party that she gives, invites people over and serves them uh, mezcal worm tacos and uh, chapolinas and all of these uh, wonderful uh, insect-based dishes in order to live lightly and still get a good protein kick. I must admit that I recently uh, took a, a friend to a restaurant. There's a brand new Mexican restaurant. And I said, well, let's go to lunch. You know, we'll talk about books and stuff. And he said, fine. And we went there. And on, Chapolinas were on the menu as an appetizer. I, I didn't order them. <laughs> I stayed with well, the mole. <laughs> well, those are, those are the grasshoppers. But the crickets, and the funny thing I've been reading about all this is that, uh, and I have tried the cricket uh, flower, of course, overdoing it on the crickets, you get the dreaded cricket breath. So that when you're going on a first date, uh, she says to you, man, what, what is that? What am I smelling? You don't have cricket breath, do you? <laughs> so I worked that in too. You know, too, too uh, I love the, uh, uh, Todd, Kat's husband. He was so... <laughs> He was just so, uh, you know, I guess practical. You know, he, he's a down-to-earth kind of a guy who works for Bacardi. Yes. Uh, hooking, trying to sell rum. So, so talk about, you know, do you investigate that kind of uh, his yes. job? Yes, he's an ambassador. Uh, is what they call it for uh, a liquor company. I have a friend who does this. And uh, it's not a salesman. It's a higher level from that. He travels around, he gives parties, and he introduces people to the rum, and uh, uh, it's a kind of marketing thing. But he's the kind of character I'm most at home with in all of my books. You can trace it all the way back uh, you know, to... to uh, Oh, to world's end if you want and you know the punks the punks come so easily to me he's um you know he's he doesn't care about anything basically except having a good time and and there's a lot of booze in this book both the cat and he are uh, alcoholic and so is cooper and this is a i thought there was an interesting theme in the book is that you know uh we're that we're most likely to kind of just drink ourselves to death. We'll just be sitting there, you know, half drunk and half asleep, staring at the end of the world going, wow, there there it goes. Well, there is good news in the book. I mean, uh, it's not exclusively dark. The ending has some uplift, I believe. And also, of course, so what if the environment is being destroyed and our children will starve in the streets? We have rum. <laughs> rum we have. You know, and all this brilliance of human beings we're talking about, we have rum, okay? 
<laughs> yeah, everybody's expecting that technology will bail us out with, uh, you know, some kind of magical carbon-absorbing scheme. Well, also, uh, as you see in the book, and this is a possibility, seeding the troposphere uh, in order to block the sun's rays. It's what happens during uh, volcanic events. And in fact, I've just written a new story about this called Cold Summer, in which I project something like this happening. It would be a way to, to prevent global warming from getting worse. But of course, <laughs> it raises its own questions, yeah. you know. Of, of course, uh, if the volcano that does this is the one that's uh, under Yellowstone and somewhere out there in mid-America, it could take out a good chunk of mid-America. That's a pretty right. large... Well, we, don't have, we don't have any control over that, but uh, truly, as in the book and in this new story, Cold Summer, uh, any rogue billionaire could uh, take a fleet of jets up there uh, and disperse hydrochloric acid uh, and uh, it would make these small compounds in the air that would deflect sunlight. It could happen. It's 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 reasonable. It can be done, but who's going to do it? And what will the, what kind of catastrophe will it cause? Okay, so maybe it would lower the the temperature of the uh, the climate of the Earth uh, a certain number of degrees. That would be great. Uh, but it would be unevenly distributed. And how much do you put? And how do you get it out of there if it goes wrong? So there are there are technological fixes, but they are probably more catastrophic than what we've done so far. Yeah, well, the, the question is, does Elon Musk have a volcan- secret volcanic lair yet? Musk who? <laughs> <laughs> Never heard of him. When, when he gets his uh, secret volcanic lair, then we all start to have to really start worrying. Yeah, you know, it's great, too. I mean, we shouldn't be exclusive. Yeah, we got guys like Musk and, and Trump and these guys. They're like the villains in the Marvel comics when we were kids, you know, living in their towers and manipulating everybody. It's amazing. It, Not to mention Putin <laughs> and all the rest of them. It is kind of sad that long ago my father would not let me read comic books because he said, you know, you have to live in the the real world, Rick. That's just fantasy stuff. And now I think, you know, when they when Marvel made the movie Civil War, I thought, well, that at this point. Uh, you know, we're living in the comic book world. <laughs> and, and Absolutely, yeah. But I, I wonder, how did he prevent you from reading comic books? Did he uh, put tape over your eyes and bind you to the chair? Uh, this is a whole novel in itself, Rick. And no, he... he <laughs> uh, basically, he just shoved Jack London novels at me, which was not could a bad have, deal. Could have been worse. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. I, right. I'm, I'm not a big comic guy. However, I think... Looking back on it, my earliest reading was comic books, and I had my period of obsession with with comic books. Um, it turned out that um, a guy in my neighborhood, a couple of years older, by the name of Herb Trimpey, did the illustrations for the Hulk. And in uh, my adult life, adult life, I was like twenty three or something. I I got to know him again, and I said to him, you know, I 
I haven't had much. I haven't read any Marvel comics. I don't really know much about it. Uh, but um, I loved the Donald Duck comics when I was a kid. And he said they were noted for their stories. So we were just reading stories. They just had illustrations in them. Yeah, the the only comic book I remember reading as a kid was the uh, uh, Classics Illustrated version of War yes. of the Worlds. Yes, I read all of those. The Classics Illustrated were great. They yeah. were great. They gave us the, 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 the classics we would read later on, but in a short form. You know, I, one of the things that, uh, about Blue Skies, I think, that is so entertaining is the the way you weave in the the way that because we actually live in the, the future of a friend of the earth that you can have events that in the friend of the earth would have been and seemed like and been science fiction now they seem like you know a sub headline on cnn and true I enough think, I, I think it's um as we were saying earlier, it's shocking how quickly uh, global warming has overtaken us. And of course, don't forget the Republicans for many years, uh, George Bush, uh, tried to suppress any kind of science about this because it was inconvenient for the oil companies who uh, bought them into office, you know. Um, nonetheless, it just happened so quickly. We knew it was coming, but it happened so very quickly. And now we have to move forward from here and wonder what's next. Um, right here in Montecito, where I live, five years ago, we after the Thomas fire, we had a devastating mudslide, debris flow, which killed 23 of my neighbors. Uh, I could uh, probably hit a baseball to where it happened. Um, we were untouched. We're up on a hill here, aside from emotionally, of course. I mean... Uh, who would think that this would happen? Well, it did, uh, just as predicted. Um, I wrote a story that includes some of this material in my last book, I Walk Between the Raindrops. Uh, and I also, the New Yorker had asked me to write an essay about it uh, during during the time that this was happening. And I kind of got it off my chest a bit, but of course, it's just one symptom of what the world is facing at large. I'm wondering, uh... How much do you know in advance that you have the stuff of a novel to heal and ready to start writing out, you know, the to give birth to it, as it were? Because mm. it, it is an organic process, it feels like. And, and it, that's what makes them so appealing. Once we read them, it, it it's like being, you know, in a, a digestive system. <laughs> Okay, so this is what art is all about. You take the uh, the illusory and the vague and you make it concrete. This is the satisfaction and joy of it. One of my close friends is a painter and uh, he paints perpetually. He paints abstracts, he paints realistic portraits, he does whatever he likes. This is his life. He sees something and he makes it concrete. And so do I. Um, I don't know what it will be. Right now, I'm in the position of just beginning a new, a new novel after having written a bunch of stories. And I uh, have no idea what it will be or where it's going, but I'm thinking about it constantly. Do you start with a character or do you start with a, a, a scene? 
It's a good question, and I've never been able to quite figure it out. Uh, the rhythm of a sentence and the beauty of a sentence is what comes to me first. But thinking about it over the years, I believe I see an image, and then the image translates itself into words, and those words have a beat and a rhythm, and it just plays out from there. So, and the characters are part of it. Uh, when I first began writing, and I was much more of a surreal and absurdist writer, although there's plenty of that in Blue Skies as well. Uh, and I was interested mainly in design and language and not so much in character. I remember my wife in that period would say to me, you know, your woman characters are really flat. And I uh, countered by saying, yeah, but so are my male characters. <laughs> uh, but, you know, over these years, it's my 31st book. I think you learn how to make all the elements of, of, of a novel um, uh, seem in proportion and, and seem right. Uh, that's what we writers strive to do. And again, the joy is, it, for us is when it comes together. You know, I think your novels... Well, are they, in fact, they are often described as satiric, but I don't think that's exactly the right description. And I think you nailed it before. They're absurd. They're both very absurd, but at the same time, the absurdism comes out of your grip on the absurdity behind realistic situations. You create realistic characters, but we live in a world that is shot through with chance and randomness, weird probability, and also the increased human ability for just random strangeness, weirdness, and violence. And I think that you capture that really well by creating realistic characters and then just slowly turning up the volume, not quite to 11, but it goes back and forth between there. To, there are moments that are, you know, we can just realize, you know, totally empathize with. For instance, when Kat's, you know, sitting around and drinking, you know, just by herself and kind of going, wow, I, I need a break. You know, the kids are just screaming all the time. You can come down. <laughs> all the time lurking in the background is that terrarium. Yeah, okay, so uh, I guess... I was sort of born a wise ass and uh, satire is my original mode, but satire's limitations are that it just holds something up to ridicule, period. Like Yvon Waugh, one of my heroes, you know, a uh, handful of dust. It is so wicked and so brilliant. However, I don't think you can sustain your life in that way as an artist. So I write in all modes. I, I've written uh, straightforward realism as well. And in a book like this one, Blue Skies, I'm doing what you suggest. Uh, I'm giving you a dramatic story that has deep characters and is, is real to the, to the world we know. Uh, uh, has you know, shocking things happen, maybe some absurd things. And there is always behind it an element of satire, but it is not flat out satire in the way of even Wall, for instance, because that's too limited. I want to explore the world in a much deeper way. 
if I can. I'm not saying I'm not comparing myself to Evelyn Waugh. He's great in what he does. But I, I did that. And I wanted to do something that goes beyond it. You mentioned World's End, for instance, or Water Music and these early large novels, uh, The Women, uh, Wow, lots of them, uh, in which, yeah, you feel a little uncomfortable at times. You sometimes laugh along with the author, uh, uh, some of the foibles of the characters. But really, I'm getting it both ways because I'm giving you an engaging drama and a, a, a narrative that's hard to put down. You want to find out what's going to happen. And you finally, I, I love what you said earlier about Kat, you finally become sympathetic with her. Again, because you're in her point of view. And if we see her at first as somewhat frivolous, uh, who isn't frivolous at 26, you know? Uh, it is very important for me to have you identify with her in some way and hope for her and sympathize with her. A very skilled use of time in this book, in that you skip through the parts of the characters' lives just enough to have a, you know, the kind of changes that matter happen and then feel real to us so that we see characters get more mature some Todd gets kind of mature but also more more you know he's like moving out slowly yeah so, well he's a party boy and Kat is a party girl and this is how they met this is what they do um, and I know this mode very very well and and Cooper too, I think, is ve is such a fascinating character, because on one hand he's very serious, and he and we all knew this kind of kid who was who would like be issuing the warning into the the science, and the kind of kid who would know everything, and yet at the same time, uh, the the kind of kid who you know just is so clueless about people and, and you know, has, you know, so self-absorbed that he doesn't really realize that, you know, maybe it, it's not a good idea to, you know, go gallivanting about with one tick girl after another. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know about that exactly. We'll, we'll, we'll hope for the best for him. Uh, there is an early chapter called Bug Boy. And this is what he is called in high school because he's fascinated by insects and collecting insects. And we see a scene in which he is humiliated by that in school. He is a, a kind of science nerd. And yet, like his mother, who wants to lower her footprint on the earth, partly through eating insects, but in other ways too, uh, he... He's admirable in some way. What he's doing is admirable. He's he's studying the decline of insects in the hope of helping to remedy it. You know, he's an environmentalist. Yet you also get the feeling that you know he's uh, sort of, as it were, sweeping the sand back into the sea. Yeah. Again, this is one of the very depressing things about what we're trying to do to preserve the environment. Uh, before we began the show, you and I were chatting about this with regard to your yard and my yard. Uh, we've planted them up with native plants. Uh, we This is, uh, back of my house here, is an overwintering place for the monarchs. 
uh, all the West Coast monarchs, a lot of them come here. When I first moved in this house 30 years ago, there were thousands of them like confetti out there. Now there are far, far fewer, but at least there are some. And the last two years, there has been a kind of comeback of the population. Uh, I leave everything natural here, uh, no pesticides, nothing like that. Um, I planted native plants as much as possible and a lot of milkweed uh, in order to um, sustain their larvae, the caterpillars. And and we have uh, our backyard is a sanctuary for the deer that run through our suburb at night. Good, good. And the coyotes can't be far behind. Uh, the, well, yeah, not too far. Although they have, have, we have, I think we saw a coyote in our yard once, and we did see a bobcat hanging on the tree, like right across from our porch. It's exciting. That's wonderful. I'm more I'm, so I'm here in Santa Barbara. Everything is woods around me. There, the Sandy Dust Mountains, and over there is the ocean. And it's it's dark at night. Absolutely dark. That's good. Uh, there are plenty of creatures if you look for them. But I don't think you'd see a bobcat right here. Coyotes, yes, but not right here. You'd have to go two miles that way up into the hills where I go and collect ticks. Do you write in the woods? No, I write sitting right here where you're looking at me. I need, I've never composed except on a keyboard. So I can't really work unless I am settled at a desk with a keyboard. So how do you keep drafts I'm wondering? Do you like have just one version of a, of an ever evolving novel or? Yes. Okay. Yes. So you yeah. don't, you don't have. 25 versions every time you no, change because it, save that it would new. put me straight in the mental hospital no <laughs> i'm a kind of a perfectionist and i like to know i can't advance unless i know that everything behind me is just the way i want it to be and so many times uh, every day i will go over what i've written before uh in order to get into that uh out of consciousness kind of uh, mode that may enable me to see what comes next it's a very mysterious process, which is why, by the way, all of the books on how to write are completely useless. They're interesting only in that this particular writer whom you admire says, this is the way I write. Okay, that's interesting, you know, but it has nothing to do with the way you write. You have to discover that on your own. And really, it's coming from some place you can't imagine. It's some assimilative process of everything you've read and known and done. And it only works in the moment of composition, in the flow. It, uh, it's nothing that can be programmed beforehand. Yes, I will sketch out, okay, this is what's going to happen now, or uh, maybe there'll be three sections in this book. I can see that, but I don't have any rigid conformity so that I don't know what's going to happen. And I suppose the reader doesn't either. And I think that's good. That is why your books are so powerful, because you are carried along on the ride of creation in the same way the readers are carried along in the act of reading. Your mm, writing experience mirrors, in a sense, our reading experience. I, I like that, Rick, but I would say that I would think that most novelists work in this way as well. They're working by instinct. Uh, some are more rigid than others. One of the best of all, 
Kazuhisha Guru says that he doesn't do anything for a year. He just thinks. And then when it's time to write, he already knows everything he's going to write. He writes it down. And by God, he does a pretty damn good <laughs> job of it. So everybody is different and everybody works in his or her own way. And that's what makes reading such a wonderful way to pass the time because you get to create memories that are as uh, endurable and indelible as uh, the real memories that you experience of what you do if you in a good book. And I can tell you, I can go back and visit scenes in any of your books that I've read, just like I was had been there in a vacation. Absolutely. And the great thing of, about reading, and I don't have to uh, preach to your audience because they already know it, is uh, it is interactive in that you interpret the words on the page in the way that you don't interpret a movie necessarily because there is a limited amount of material. There it is. It's been focused for you, edited for you. In the book, though, you open up your own experience and make this movie in your mind. So it is the first interactive work of art. Uh, tell that to the teenage boys of the world, though, because they've got their own interactive video games, which have supplanted reading for an entire generation, including my sons. And with that, <laughs> we'll put that on the tombstone of civilization. <laughs> <laughs> well said. I've been speaking with T.C. Boyle. His new book is Blue Skies. Thank you for joining me, T.C. As always, it's a pleasure, Rick. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. <laughs>